Welcome to Animal Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Hi, everyone. How are you doing today? Uh, before we get going, I just want to remind you to uh, visit us and like us on Facebook. We've got a lot of activity there, and you can follow the show there. And then also subscribe on iTunes, and this way you can listen every week to a new show on your mobile device. Okay, big news out of Alaska, and that is the Alaska divorce law was just amended. And if you care about the legal status of non-human animals, you're going to really be interested in this story. And with me right now to tell us about it is Bob Ferber. Hi, Bob. Hi, Peter. How are you? I am very well and especially happy to speak with you about this new law. So why don't you just tell us what happened, okay? Okay, well... um as uh, many of your listeners might know, that you know animals pretty much in the law, it was in this country and around the world, treat animals as property. For in most cases, an animal is not treated much more differently than you know any other inanimate, not any other, but an inanimate object. And we all know anybody who's listening to this show and is a pet lover knows that that's not what an animal is. Uh, and these, the situation comes up very often in family law when there is a divorce. Mm-hmm. And it's been happening for decades where people get divorced, they have a pet, a dog or a cat, and they're, they're, they may be able to resolve everything from the house, the property, the car, uh, the income, but the battle ends up becoming extremely bitter over the family pet. Both sides want the pet. Both sides say that the, that in their, the most common statement is, this dog is closer to me. I adopted this dog. Another one, the other person may say, well, I paid for the vet bills, and, I, and the dog sleeps with me. And the other one's, yeah, but I take the dog to work, and the dog licks me, and he doesn't lick you, yeah. and he wants to eat. That. And so the battle goes on as to who should get the animal. And the judges around the country in all 50 states have struggled with this and almost universally have said, we're not going to consider any of that. Animals are property. The law says that. And until something changes, I'm sorry, but it doesn't matter who's closer to the animal, who's closer, who took care of it. It doesn't matter what's in the best interest of the animal. It doesn't matter who's better able to take care of the vet bills or who the animal loves to be with more, who the animal maybe doesn't like and wants to bite all the time. It's simply this is like a chair or anything else, and you guys are going to have to settle it. And in most cases, the judges have said, I'm not going to go there. You guys can either go to mediation or, you know, you can, you, you're going to have to work it out because the judge says, I refuse to get involved okay. in this. And it's been extremely frustrating. And even animal lawyers or animal loving lawyers who've tried to resolve this have said it's one of the most stressful, emotional parts of family law. Yeah. Because unlike with animals, with children, the law is very clear. What is in the best interest of the child? It really doesn't matter in family court when they're going through a divorce which family member wants the child more. It's a matter of what's in the best interest of the child. And that's not true with animals. 
Alaska, and it's it's kind of interesting of all 50 states, Alaska is the first state to actually pass a law, and a lot of judges, by the way, have said, if you people out there in this country want animals to be treated differently than property, you need to pass a law. Well, Alaska did it, and they, they passed a law that now tells judges that they shall consider, along with other factors, mm-hmm. what is in the best interest of the animal. So it's not as close as children saying that we, you will only consider that, but it says you shall consider. And that in legal, legalese means they basically must consider it. They can't ignore it. So that could go and involve everything from <clears throat> who the animal likes best, who can take care of the vet bills best, who can provide the best shelter, who provides the best emotional support. And in some ways, we probably are going to see in courtrooms around Alaska efforts by people getting divorced to say, that dog wants to be with me. That dog, you know, if we go in the middle of the courtroom and the dog's in the middle and I'm on one side and my husband, soon-to-be ex-husband's on the other side, that dog's going to come to me because that dog loves me. Yeah. Here's and then the other person, the husband, may say, well, he may love you, but you can't pay the vet bills. I can pay the vet bills. And so these are the kind of arguments we're going to begin to see. And I want your listeners to know this is wonderful news, actually. It's uh, not just because I'm an attorney and I love these interesting issues, but it, this is the beginning of a new area of law, and this is how it's carved out, which is, you know, peop- what is in the best interest of a dog. And also, because the law says it is, it shall consider this along with other factors, it appears that the courts will also be considering what do the people want. And so let's say there's a service dog that is a service dog that is for a therapy dog for one of the partners in the marriage. Well, that certainly would be a factor of even though maybe the other person who's not with a disability, the wife doesn't have a disability and says the dog sleeps with me, I love this dog, I feed her, I paid for everything, but the dog is a service dog to the, the husband and the husband needs that dog. How do you weigh all that out? And that makes for very interesting and probably some very combative court battles. But in the end, if there is an end, this will go on for years, and we will see a lot of interpretations and fights and in court and judges saying, I don't know what to do, or this is what I'm going to do. And I have a feeling that the, the Alaskan Supreme Court is going to get a lot more cases on this oh. now that they've opened up the door for this discussion. So it's very exciting, and it's the beginning of really is the beginning or big beginning of changing the way animals are treated. Uh, We already have cruelty laws on our books, as you know, Peter, that say that, you know, an animal animal is not a a chair. You can't be cruel to a chair or a vehicle, but you can be cruel to an animal. So cruelty laws start to recognize animals as being different. This now extends that to civil law, and that is huge. That could lead to other areas where people have emotional distress when an animal is abused, and maybe they can sue for that. It can, it can, it can you know, if, uh, if a vet commits malpractice, maybe now the animal is worth more than just as being a piece of property. So there's so many areas, Peter, where this can go, and, and, and I do suspect that other states are going to start passing similar laws. Mm-hmm. And for animal lovers out there, it's an extremely exciting 
change, and uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to be happening next. Bob, was it specified what animals are covered here? That's the first issue that's going to come, one of the first. What is a companion animal? Um, the, the court doesn't describe that, you know, we'll do this with a dog, but not a, a fish, or, you know, or, you know, a, a dwarf hamster, or this is, you know, or I'm bonded with this bird, or, you know, there's so many species. And, you know, for just about any animal on the planet, there is somebody who will say, this is my companion animal. We've all seen videos of extraordinary videos of people in uh, around the world, especially like in Africa, where, you know, game wardens and, and, and locals have grown up raising wild animals where they're sleeping in bed with a tiger. And the tiger is friendlier to them than, you know, some of my pet cats that are sitting here with me now. Uh, is that a companion animal? If, let's say, a husband and wife are running a sanctuary for lions and or, or tigers and uh, and they get divorced, and they say that these are our companion animals, and each one is saying, well, I'm closer to the tiger. Well, I want the tiger also. Well, first question is, is a law like this in Alaska going to say that that this law applies in Alaska it might be let's say a, a polar bear or a penguin sanctuary yeah. uh, the two owners of that sanctuary if they get divorced do they have rights to call it the, the ability to say these are companion animals we don't know yet and so I doubt that the legislature is going to be able to list all of them. I have a feeling that right now it's going to be up to judges to figure it out. And, oh, Peter, I'm quite sure you and I are going to have some interesting stories to talk about, about, you know, unusual and probably very Very uh, heartwarming Uh relationships between animals and people that may not include just dogs and cats. And so we'll have to see where that goes. Bob, this law also allows courts to include pets in domestic violence protection orders. They're catching up with sort of an old idea by adding that. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and it, and it, it's, it's through, you know, it, it's a matter of evolution that when a state, one state passes the law, then another one and another one. There were other states before Alaska, including California, that have already passed laws saying that a court is authorized to uh, include animals in a protective order so that if there's a domestic violence and the wife is, gets a protect, what they call a protective order, keeping the husband away from her, her household, her children. Uh, it used to be that you, that you know the abuser, typically a man, would sometimes abuse the animal, and he wouldn't be the animal would not be protected from having contact with the abuser, even if he had already abused the dog in the household. States like California and others have passed laws that make it clear that you can do that. California, I mean Alaska, now has caught up with that. And along with this extremely innovative or progressive law about, you know, considering animals, companion animals in divorce and in custody cases, they've also sort of brought that in. And it's a, it's, it's a very good thing for animals, 
for people it's uh it's something that you know is is a wonderful thing and very soon all states around the country are going to be having a similar law like that bob ferber thank you so much for laying this out for us we look forward to speaking with you more as some of these uh, complex issues um, arise yes i'm looking forward to it too uh, it's going to be an ongoing uh an ongoing saga but in most cases i think it's going to be really help the welfare of animals and the, the bond between people and animals More with animals today after the break. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. So, Lori, the cloning of dogs is in the news. Did you hear about that? About this? The cloning of dogs, yes. Yes, that's becoming popular. Apparently, there's a facility in South Korea. They've done 600 dogs so far. Tell me how it works. You know, that's a good question because, you know, you would think the term cloning is sort of benign and it wouldn't really be hard to do. You could maybe scrape some cells and get them to grow in a dish and somehow get a replica of your beloved pet, right? Right. That would be my first thought, that it wouldn't be so invasive, but alas, that's not the case. Not only not invasive, but costing the lives of many, many, many other dogs to get that one cloned dog, correct? Okay, so this is how that works. First of all, you need to get some eggs, and the eggs from a dog, well, you got to get a dog who's got these eggs. So it's unclear where these dogs come from that supply their eggs, but you've got to get at their ovaries, and that's done through an open surgery. So they anesthetize the dog, open up the abdomen, get the ovaries, and sort of harvest these eggs. And then where these dogs come from and where they go to is undisclosed so far. Okay, And then they utilized these eggs. They go in there with micropipette and take out the contents. You've got like an empty, called a blank egg. And then uh, also, now this is done like in a little dish. Then you've got a skin cell from an animal that you want to clone. And that is placed into the egg. Okay, so then you've got your little embryo. Right. Right. And then, like Frankenstein, they zap it with a little electricity to start it developing. Start it developing. Okay. And then that gets implanted into another dog, the the host mother dog. The surrogate dog. Right. Okay. Who, of course, volunteers for this and gets very highly compensated for this. And this embryo is then implanted into this surrogate. And then 61 days later, you get your puppy or puppies or nothing. Frequently, they fail. Uh, but look what happened. Look at the collateral damage. Well, besides the fact that it's about $100,000 per attempt and they frequently fail and the puppies that are produced are frequently sick and don't have normal, happy puppy and adult lives, 
there's no indication where either of these uh, sets of dogs are come from and where they go. So it takes many surrogate dogs and many egg donor dogs. Right. Many attempts to produce one clone dog. They've done about 600 so far, and there's a big demand for it, according to the company. So what do you think about this? It's horrible. Well, it's first horrible. of all, yeah, look who wants it done. People who are grieving, they've lost a beloved pet, and they want to recreate that animal. And that is sort of ridiculous. And, okay, I feel bad for the people. Get get real, right? And the dog that's produced is not a duplicate of the your pet. I mean, it, the genes may be the same, but it doesn't equal the same exact dog. The dog's going to have his own or her own personality, and then there's a, you know, the life experience changes how they are, and it's just not the same. It's never the same. This dog that they're trying to replicate is costing the lives of many, many, many other dogs for this one dog, and it costs the person $100,000 to do it. I wonder who's asking, and I wonder to the people who ask what assurances they get. I would like to hear that. Do you remember Dolly the sheep? Yes. So Dolly, Dolly was the first mammal cloned from a somatic cell, right? Cloned from just a regular cell. They happened to use a mammary cell, which is, I think, why they called her Dolly, because of the mammary Dolly Parton connection. But uh, Dolly lived almost seven years. She was, and now she's stuffed. She's taxidermied and she was uh, from Scotland, and uh, she sort of was used to prove that, that you could do this, and subsequently many other animals um, have been cloned, and there's a growing science about this, but in the pet universe, not so good. How about the human universe? Well, that's going to be interesting also. I bet you there are many books about this already. What if uh, you could clone with no collateral damage, just uh, get a skin cell and zap it, and uh, it grows in a little Petri dish. What do you think about just creating a clone without any other trouble? Every animal, whether human or non-human, is an individual. Although I just love my dogs and my cats that I've had in the past to pieces, I would not want to clone them. Yes. Would you? No, of course not. I'm a traditionalist. Peter, do you know if South Korea is the only area doing this? Yeah, only South Korea so far. It wouldn't surprise me if these start popping up everywhere. You know, with the money involved, it's going to happen. Yeah. Peter, changing the subject, I need to share this tragic story with you. On December 21st, a rare red wolf was found dead. And apparently this wolf was found shot and killed a couple days before that. This is according to a release from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The wolf was found in the... Pocasin Lakes National Wildlife Refuge in Columbia, North Carolina. Federal authorities are now offering a reward of $2,500 for information leading to the arrest of the person who shot the wolf. While the red wolf population once flourished across 1.7 million acres of five rural counties in eastern North Carolina, the wolves are now extremely endangered and federally protected with less than 47 currently remaining in the wild. So in North Carolina, like in many areas where people have livestock, landowners are allowed to shoot and kill a nuisance wolf if it is attacked 
attack their livestock or their pets. Red wolves have also been shot at after being mistaken for coyotes, which has sadly aided in their population decline. So, Peter, essentially, you're allowed to kill a wolf at your discretion, I guess. I mean, as long as you say, oh, it was a nuisance wolf or just claim it attacked your pets or livestock. I mean, who verifies the story? No one, of course. So it sounds to me that you're pretty much given a license to kill wolves and coyotes whenever you want. But it's against the law and you might be arrested if you happen to kill a red wolf. So you think the kind of person that would get their shotgun and kill a wolf to protect their livestock or their pet is the kind of person that would wait for one minute to really get a good look at the animal, to make sure that they're not killing a red wolf? And do you think that person cares what kind of wolf they kill? No. Anyway, environmental and animal advocate groups are urging the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to recommit to a red wolf recovery plan for the wild wolves to keep them in existence. Back in January of last year, I spoke to Darlene Kababel, president of the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center, about wolves and the ongoing conflicts with rangers. And if you have a chance to listen to that interview, I thought it was extremely informative. And she explains why we need wolves in our ecosystem. They are top predators and they are needed to keep everything in check and in balance. She also invalidated some of the myths associated with wolves. And finally, she explains that there are ways to coexist with ranchers. There's a group called Defenders of Wildlife, and I know there are several such animal welfare organizations that help livestock and wolves coexist on the same landscape. So these groups work with ranchers or those who are willing, I guess, to develop non-lethal deterrence and other tools that minimize the conflict and build social acceptance for wolves. Anyway, obviously, I support Fish and Wildlife Service committing to a recovery plan for the red wolves. But more importantly, and I don't think it's ever going to happen, They should be working with these animal welfare groups to help ranchers coexist better with our wildlife rather than the first solution or the first thing being just kill wildlife at your discretion if he or she is a nuisance to you. Okay, you're listening to Animals Today. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. Welcome, Professor Daniel Blumstein. He is professor and chair of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UCLA. And the paper he and his colleagues just published is titled How Nature-Based Tourism Might Increase Prey Vulnerability to Predators. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Dan, ecotourism and nature-based tourism is a very fast-growing segment of the travel industry. And overall, you know, I'd say people view this as a positive. You're not ruining the environment. You're not killing the animals. And yet you and your colleagues wonder whether a different type of harm may result. Please explain. Well, I think ecotourism has the best intentions. Much of nature-based tourism isn't ecotourism. People go to natural areas. Eight billion people a year are estimated to go to protected areas every year. Um, That's a lot of people. That's more than everyone, every single person on Earth, and then some. And we know that developing areas for nature-based tourism cause ecological changes. Roads are built. When roads go in areas, there's, you know, roadkill, there's dust, there's destruction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've known about these things before. 
What, what we do is we develop a new way of thinking about how animals might respond to tourists. And we do so by tying it into what we know about animal domestication, where animals are tamed, which is within generational change in behavior, where they become um, mellower, where they uh, become relaxed around people. Yep. And then also with domestication, we select animals, artificially select them to be more uh, for traits that are, that are desirable. And when we know from selection experiments that all sorts of traits are packaged together. And then we said, okay, well, where else is this sort of happening? This is happening also in urbanization. As we build cities, as more people move into places, um, people come in contact with wildlife. And we know that in urbanization sorts of scenarios, um, some animals may tolerate us, others may not. And those that do become more accustomed to us, we can get closer to them. Um, and we're now finding, many people are finding, that there's evolutionary change in these domesticated populations as well. And we say that one of the key factors with ecotourism or nature-based tourism and domestication and, and um, urbanization is that sometimes when people go to areas, we scare away predators. We create what's called a human shield. And this makes animals feel safer. Sometimes it may attract more animals to areas. And animals become relaxed. They become less vigilant. And maybe if we are selecting, as we do with um, these other sorts of scenarios, for particular sorts of animals, these animals may become more vulnerable to predation when, predator, when they encounter predators. How does that work? Why would an animal become a more susceptible, perhaps, to predation after you're gone? What we're setting this up as, this, the journal we published in is called Trends in Ecology and Evolution, and it's uh, a review and sort of preview type journal where papers try to sort of set out questions that people should be thinking about and asking. And we're saying we know that there's enough pieces of the puzzle here that all work together. We need to understand the conditions under which this might happen and the extent of what, what makes this happen. Now, I know from some of my own work that actually animals around people are still able to respond to and still able to recognize predators. But it does seem that um, there are some cases of other species that become less able to discriminate predators. There's one study of, of fox squirrels that suggests that, that in urban areas they have lost their ability to respond to the smell of predators, which is really interesting if it's true. And it's really interesting if, it's more, if, this, if this happens more extensively. We also know that um, immediately these human shields I'm talking about, people making animals feel safer because of we exclude predators, have all sorts of immediate ecological effects. Um, we can see in places where animals are coming, uh, prey animals are coming because it's safe. We can see them eating selected foods more than they normally would, and you know the plants take a hit. But there's all sorts of other ecological dynamics at play here as well. So if this is happening, and we can't say how extensive this is, but we can say here are all the pieces of the puzzle, and it seems to be likely, then we should be worried about um, our potential inadvertent taming of animals that occurs with certain forms of ecotourism. We know that people go out and specifically try to habituate animals to make it easier for ecotourists to see them. We know this has been very successfully done with great apes in East and Central Africa. And we also know that those very individuals that are habituated to tourists are then more vulnerable to wildlife poachers. And if that is happening with um, non-human predators as well, which 
which it may be in certain circumstances, um, we have problems. Much ecotourism really is ecotourism in quotes. When people are going out and feeding animals in the wild, I don't think that's the best thing for them. And my co-authors and I don't think that's the best thing for them. And that tames them excessively and brings them in to us. And if they live their whole lives there, if this is a very intensive thing, if there are lots of people around, then, then maybe we are systematically scaring away the predators and, and maybe over gener- within generations, but also across generations, we might be causing changes. One of the points you make, we really don't know the unintended consequences of this huge experiment. I agree. And I'm a ecotourist. Um, I think um, that it's important to go out and see and interact with nature. I think that I and many others go to developing countries where um, really there might not be other alternatives other than consuming nature than other than than, than coming up with um, an income stream for preserving and protecting it. And, you know, one shouldn't say all ecotourism is bad, but we need to better understand, and hopefully in the next five to ten years, this paper will stimulate more research to to look at the scope and and breadth of this, and we'll know more. Then we can begin thinking about things that might not be so good and things that might be fixable. But it's always a cost-benefit analysis. So if, even though the apes and gorillas and, and chimpanzees might be habituated in East and Central Africa, that's been influential and, and, and really, really, really important in preserving the habitat and preserving those species. Right. So even if there is some heightened risk for these animals, the overall cost-benefit scenario might be greater than, you know, the benefits may outweigh the costs. Now, maybe that's different in Yellowstone, right. where we know that moose and other ungulates are hanging out by roads where people are because they're avoiding wolves, and they're foraging more on the vegetation in this area, they're getting hit by cars in some cases, they're having their fawns um, in these, or calves in these areas. So, you know, maybe maybe we'll want to zone places for high-intensity ecotourism. Maybe we want to minimize the extent of it. Maybe we need to think about the temporal nature of this ecotourism. Lots of future questions to be asked. And I think that ecotourists, the ones who really truly care about the nature and biodiversity and animals, ultimately are going to be those most interested in figuring this out and self-regulating themselves um, when good predictions can be made. The people who are leading the tours or uh, providing the business that the ecotourists uh, patronize, they may not have the best intentions or the best knowledge in this in this area. They may or they may not. And as far as I know, there's no, I mean, there are ecotourism associations, and some of these are just tourist associations yeah. with another, you know, label. Um, some care about outcomes. Some Many places are very well regulated. The Galapagos, I'm sure, are very different now with the amount of ecotourism they have than, than, than say, 50 years ago. But um, the Galapagos also are very well regulated in terms of how many visitors can go places and um, what they can do and their, their code of conduct. Um, Antarctica, yep. a lot of interest in ecotourism there, some regulation. Um, you know, I, I think some people are you know, concerned about uh, habituating penguins and other uh, stressful encounters with humans that penguins and other animals may have. 
a few years ago, Lori and I were uh, vacationing down in New Zealand, and we did not participate, but we observed a uh, a tour boat. It was uh, they they were swimming with the dolphins. The dolphins were in in the bay, so they were they were. I guess they started out as wild, but you would go and they. I guess they were feeding them or attracting them somehow, and we just knew this this wasn't right, and we were not at all interested in that. We you don't really know what that does. Well, um, we don't, um, and there's more invasive you know ways of doing that, and there may be less invasive ways. Certainly, there's this tension between you know whale watching and marine mammal watching boats that are supposed to stay in the U.S. at least a certain number of yards or meters away. Whether they do or don't is another thing. But um, you know, we, we we are maybe loving our animals to death. Maybe it's not stressful, and we need to know whether it is. Just because an animal's hanging out with you doesn't mean it's not stress stressed and experiencing. Um, a heightened stress response, increasing its physiological burden, etc. Um, really, decisions about where to hang out and where to stay and how to interact are traded off with other costs and benefits. So, what we're suggesting in our review is that an un, un, un or underappreciated potential cost is the risk of predation, enhanced risk of predation. People have thought about physiological costs before. Now, that's interesting because. Do I think that um, ecotourism is going to lead to large or is leading to large scale um, predator mortality of, of species that people watch? Probably not. But many of the wildlife and biodiversity problems we face today are really a death by a thousand cuts. We've got climate change, um, stressing out animals and plants, moving them to different locations, making it better or worse for them in certain areas. We've got habitat destruction leading to fragmentation of habitats and subdivision of populations. And when we get smaller and smaller populations, they become more and more vulnerable. And it doesn't really take that many extra road kills or predation events to take a population that is on a sustainable trajectory or growing population trajectory to put it onto a negative population trajectory. So many of the species that people watch are endangered and threatened. Is this an issue for them? Um, we don't know. No one's really been asking the question this way. So we hope to stimulate research to better understand um, how important this is compared to other things and recognizing that really this is trying to manage a death by a thousand cuts. Um, maybe there's something we can do about it. Maybe not. Maybe it's not a huge problem, but um, we've, I think, articulated a plausible series of events and scenarios by which this is likely to be an issue. And it's certainly, um, with so many people loving nature and wanting to go out into nature and interact with animals and, and, and preserve biodiversity or experience biodiversity, um, there's a huge opportunity for both cost and benefit. Professor Dan Blumstein, thanks very much for sharing this uh, paper with us and your thoughts and joining us here on Animals Today. Thanks for having me. When educator-turned-hip-hop artist D1 finished paying back his student loans, he celebrated by writing the song Sally Mae Back. Now he's teaming up with Sally Mae to help students get on track to paying off their loans. I'm passionate about helping people learn about financial literacy. The reality is that students are hungry for information. They want to understand the facts about paying back their loans and the best way to do it. Sally Mae's Rick Castellano adds, We're thrilled to work with D1 to help students get into the rhythm of repayment. He lays out the process and steps that are both direct and doable, teaching the right moves for building credit, 
and successfully paying back student loans. Now through January 11th, Sally Mae customers with eligible student loans have the chance to win up to $10,000 to pay down their loans. For D1's complete list of tips and to enter the Pays to Repay contest, visit SallyMay.com. That's SallyMay.com. I'm Bob Pipo for the Consumer Radio Network. Back to the show. You know, we used to have a bug guy come by the house each month to spray the perimeter of the house because we're getting a lot of ants inside. And we always wondered whether this was safe for the dogs and when we could let them go out again. And what if they stepped in the sprayed area? Would they then lick their paws and get sick? You know, I'm still not really sure what risks pesticides and weed killers pose to dogs and cats, but I know who does. Robert Reed, Medical Director, VCA Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Dr. Reed, I have so many questions about this. Let's start with insecticides, especially the ones professionally sprayed. What are they and what precautions do I need to take with my companion animals around the house? Well, first off, you know, I could give you some suggestions of things to do to protect your household and your pets in your household. Um, but I think it's important anytime you ask someone to apply a pesticide around your home to know what they're going to use. There are so many different agents out there that are used for pesticides as pesticides, um, and they have different levels of risk. And the exposure risk is different, and the way the cats or dogs might respond to them is different. So I think it's realistic to to expect that you know what agents are being used and and what level of safety they have. And those questions about how long can your cat or dog be exposed to them, how long are they going to be in the environment, where are they going to go in the environment, Um, is the residue that's left behind going to be toxic? Those are all legitimate questions. Um, that you should ask, and you should think about what your goal is for pesticide treatment. So that if you're treating for ants, you you just treat for ants. If you're just treating your trees, you just treat your trees. You know, you limit the exposure to the environment and to the and limit the areas that your pet can come into contact with. It. Specifically, if you know if you're having someone come over to your house. Uh, to, to treat the area for, pet, for pests, then you, you, of course, want to remove the pets from the area. All of their toys, beds, I mean, chew bones, food bowls, all of those should be removed. Um, always remember to cover any, cover any aquaria that fish might be in so that any vapors or residues don't end up in the water there. Um, I would make sure uh, that you... Uh, that you know how long they have to be off of the area. Obviously, as you as you mentioned, you want to keep the uh, pets away from any areas until it's completely dried. Um, but you also want to know how long, even after that, you might be they might be able to have contact. You know, treating a lawn, for instance, with a herbicide or the pesticide may have uh, a longer duration of risk than treating the tile in your kitchen, for instance, because of the different products that are used different rates of degradation. You know, if you know what product is being used, you can know whether sunlight or whether water has an effect on the degradation. But you, you should ask those, and I think you're, you should expect your, your pest control provider to be able to provide that information. Yeah, um, you, go ahead. There's another thing that I think you want to keep track of 
if you're applying a spray, then you have one potential impact. But if you're using a pesticide that's provided in a bait or something that the pest is intended to eat, then the level of risk to your pets is completely different. And in fact, toxicities are probably much more likely in cases where, you know, where herbicides are more likely insecticides or rodenticides or snail baits are provided in forms that animals eat, meaning that your dog or cat might be tempted to eat them as well. Now, do dogs and cats like to lick these products, or is it just incidental contact that's really the concern here? I think that, again, depends on which agent you're using, and it depends on where it's being applied. Uh, I think that there aren't very many dogs or cats that would lick a surface after it's been sprayed, but there are a few, and you need to know your dog and you yeah. need to make sure that if they're intended to do that, yeah. they don't, just because that's an, an increase in exposure that you can avoid. Um, but once it's dried, the, the chance of the residue impacting them, in other words, getting on their feet and, and licking them and infect, affecting them to a level that's toxic is extremely small. Uh, I think that when it's wet, there's a greater chance of absorption of the toxin, which may have a higher likelihood of reaching a level of toxicity. But once it's applied and dried, there's very little risk of exposure with the exception of, of anything that's applied to the lawn that may have a long degradation process where pets may be rolling around in the grass and having extended exposures over a long period of time that might increase their level of risk. And what are the signs of toxicity? Depends on the toxin involved. You know, if you're talking about an organophosphate, which is more likely something that's used as a spray or a pyrethrin, it, it could be neurologic. It could be gastrointestinal, meaning, you know, drooling or vomiting or diarrhea. It depends largely on what's being used, and that's another good reason um, to ask what's being used so you know what to expect. But some of these toxins that are used as rotenticides actually cause internal bleeding. Some of them cause swelling in the brain, and this is of both the intended victim and an unintended victim like a dog or a cat. Uh, and uh, the, the most common side effect of something like snail bait is probably seizures. Wow. And what's the treatment for toxicity? Depends again on what you're using. Um, it's really important if your pet is exposed to a toxin that you know what it is because we have available um, experts through the uh, Animal Poison Control Center that can help us come up with the best way to treat uh, any exposure if we know what it is. So if there's any way that you can provide a veterinarian or poison control specialist with the exact compound, it will go a long way to helping in the success of the treatment. Very good. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you. You're welcome. So obviously, if one suspects their pet has ingested or becomes ill from pesticides, call your veterinarian right away. There is a National Pesticide Information Center, which Dr. Reed was telling me about, that people can call if they have questions related to pesticide use around their home and around their pets. That number is 800-858-7378. 7378. That's the National Pesticide Information Center. 
Thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on AnimalsTodayRadio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website again is AIanimals.org. And thanks for listening. Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, ISARonline.org.